You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual So, Jussie Smollett. I talked around him last week, didn't mention him by name because I wanted to wait until the results of the investigation came out. Smollett, of course, is the actor who claimed he was attacked in the middle of the night in Chicago by two masked men who recognized him from Empire, something I wouldn't have been able to do myself a month ago. And he alleged that these two men shouted homophobic and racist slurs as they beat him down and may have said something about Chicago being MAGA country. I am from Chicago. There are racist assholes in Chicago, just as there are racist assholes everywhere. Ask me sometime about the neighbor across the alley who threatened to go get his shotgun because my mom invited a black family to a backyard barbecue. But not even the racist assholes in Chicago are deluded enough to think they live in MAGA country. And man, that detail about the noose... Smollett said he didn't want to take the noose off after the attack because he wanted to, quote, preserve the evidence. But he also said he didn't want to report the attack at all and that a friend had to talk him into calling the cops. So if you didn't want to report the attack, if you didn't want to call the cops, why preserve the evidence? And it's not like taking the noose off your neck would make it evaporate. You could still hand it over to the police with, you know, your phone. The business with the noose was the reason I didn't say anything, at least not publicly, when the news first broke. Anyway, due to timing issues, I tape my show intros on Monday. The show comes out on Tuesday. The results of the investigation into the Smollett case came out on Wednesday. Pretty much anything and everything that needs to be said about Jesse Smollett has already been said on other podcasts, other news programs, social media platforms, late night comedy shows, including the two observations I just made about Chicago not being MAGA country and that business with the noose. So I'll just say this. Jussie Smollett was charged with falsifying a police report, and that's a felony. And he should have been charged with that. And as I said at the top of last week's show, I think people who file false reports of hate crimes should be charged with committing hate crimes. But here's all I want to add this week. If filing a false police report can get your ass tossed in jail for three years, yeah, just imagine if every cop in Chicago who'd ever filed a false police report was taken into custody along with Smollett. And imagine if every white person who'd ever called the cops, who'd ever filed a false police report on someone having a barbecue in a public park with family while black or setting up a lemonade stand with their kids while black or walking or driving or sitting while black. Imagine if all those folks got taken into custody. We'd have to commandeer both of Chicago's baseball stadiums to process that many arrests at once. Anyway, I shall now pivot from the gay guy who did something stupid to the gay guy doing something kind of cool, cool and ambitious and probably a little bit delusional. Pete Butt Edge Edge, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, he's gay and he's out and he's gay married and he is running for president. Now, it might have been better if the first legitimate out gay presidential candidate had a different last name, a last name that didn't include the word butt right at the beginning. But, you know, our first black president? Had a name that triggered the racists out there. Barack Hussein Obama rhymes with Osama. And if the first gay president winds up having a name that triggers homophobes, butt, edge, edge, maybe that'll be a sign that our first female president is going to need a name that triggers sexists. So if butt, edge, edge wins, if he gets sworn in in 2021 as president of the United States with a name like butt, edge, edge, 
Yeah, then new parents in 2021 who want their little girls to grow up to be president are going to want to name their girls something that triggers the sexists. Something like vulva power or close the orgasm gap or abortion on demand or Hillary. Anyway, I made my first donation in the 2020 race to Pete Butt Edge Edge. I don't usually make donations this early. I prefer to wait until we have a nominee. But Pete Butt Edge Edge is the only millennial in the race, and he's had some really ballsy things to say about undoing the damage done to our judiciary and about climate change. And I want him on that debate stage during the primary debates. And to get there, he needs to get contributions from 65,000 individual donors. I made a donation. If you want to see that millennial gay dude who has cool things to say about unpacking or packing the courts, look Pete up on the internet, get your ass to his website and make a donation to his campaign. All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your cues, lots of my A's on the free micro edition of the Savage Lovecast. And coming up on the Magnum subscription edition that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as long and no ads. I have a long conversation with author Johan Hari about depression, how it's over-medicalized, and he offers a new way to look at treating people who are suffering from depression and anxiety. And because this is a love and relationship advice show, we talk about dating people who are depressed. That's a topic that comes up a lot and dating people who are depressed who aren't getting any help for it. When is the time to pull the plug? Johan Hari, author of a terrific new book on depression, weighs in today on The Magnum. Hi, Dan. I'm a 19-year-old queer person living in the South. Um, I hit it out of the park basically on my second boyfriend, and I could really see myself being with him for the long haul. We've been together almost three years, and things are great. We're compatible in nearly every way, but there's just one problem. My boyfriend and I live about 30 minutes away from each other. He lives in the town where we both go to school, and I live in a smaller town nearby. I live with my aunt and uncle, who have four small children, so our house isn't really great for spending time together. And on his end, his roommate has decided that he's going to threaten my boyfriend with eviction if I show up at all more than three days a month to the house, like step foot in the house at all. So I'm having a problem because this is really painful for me emotionally and it's harming our sex life. So I'm not sure what to do. I've thought of everything. We we spend a lot of time with our friends and at our friends' houses as far as the social side of things go, but we don't have any time or space to be alone together and I'm not really comfortable with exhibitionism. So if you could give me some help, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much. There's something you don't mention. There's something that doesn't come up in your call, and it has me concerned, or I'm curious about it. You don't mention your boyfriend taking any proactive steps to get himself into a new living situation that would allow you to set foot in his apartment or the house where he lives. You also don't mention why it is his roommate basically has banned you from entering the premises more than three times a month. That seems crazy. If there's something wrong with you, if you'd done some terrible thing, if you'd set fire to the place, his roommate wouldn't ban you all but three days a month. He would ban you entirely. So I think, I think probably it's the roommate who's the problem. Maybe in the past with other roommates or with your boyfriend, there were too many sleepovers or too many other partners rattling around the apartment, using water and electricity and driving up the utility bills. And he establishes blanket. Nobody else is allowed in the apartment overnight or at all to protect himself from being exploited again in this way. That said, the only solution here, the only thing I can offer you is the obvious. Your boyfriend needs to find a new place to live. 
someplace you can come to visit. You also, you're only 19, you're still dependent on family for a place to live. You need to be making a long-term plan that gets you into a place where you can live more independently, where you have more privacy, where your boyfriend can come over and hang out. The course of true love never did run smooth. That is especially true when you are young and other people, authority figures, because they're family, because they're your parents, because it's their lease and you have to abide by their rules, have control over your life in a way that in a few more years, they won't have control over your life. And in the meantime, the only thing that will make your current situation endurable is some idea of when this will end. Some light at the end of the tunnel that you can see coming, a better day, a better day when you can go into a bedroom in your boyfriend's apartment and close the door and fuck his brains out without having to worry about your cousins overhearing every squick and thrust and not having to worry about his landlord freaking the fuck out. Hi, Dan. This is a 25-year-old female calling from the Pacific Northwest. I'm calling because I had a strange sexual experience uh, recently, and it just kind of stumped me. So I'm in my mid-20s, as I said, and I usually sleep with guys who are a bit older than me. But a couple months ago, I decided to hook up with a friend who's in his early 20s. And after we had sex, he asked me whether or not he was circumcised, like like if I could tell him whether or not he was circumcised and he wasn't and I told him and I just sort of played it off like that was a normal question which I had received after sex plenty of times but it's not and I'm just wondering if you have any insight or if any of your listeners have any insight to this like is it common for guys to be confused like I I just don't know how he could not know and like he supposedly had plenty of prior sexual experience and like there's the internet. So if you have any guesses as to how someone could not know whether or not they were circumcised, I'd love to hear it because I felt very confused and not to mention pretty turned off and I'll probably never sleep with the guy again. Thank you for the question. There's no Savage Lovecast without your questions and I'm always happy to kick a question to my listeners and play some of their responses. But the only person who knows the answer to this question, the person you should put this question to is the dude who seems to be confused about whether he is cut or not. You should ask him why he asked you that question. I don't understand why you wouldn't ask him why he asked you that question, since you aren't interested in sleeping with him ever again. So there's literally no stakes here. You have nothing to lose because you want him out of your life anyway. So if he's offended by the question, who gives a shit? He might be able to answer the question. You give a shit. You give enough of a shit that you're curious to know the answer to the question. And you might get that answer if you ask the appropriate person, which is him. Dude, what the fuck? You are not circumcised. It is obvious that you are not circumcised. Why would you ask that question of me? Perhaps he was testing you. Perhaps he's been with some women in the past who didn't know a cut dick from an uncut dick. And it was a trick question. And the person being tricked was you. But again, the only person who can solve this mystery is the dude who asked you that question. And I would encourage you to call him and ask him. And if you are too nervous, too ashamed, too squicked, not wanting to be in contact with this person again, personally, you could always send me his phone number and I will cold call him myself and I will ask him that question. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old straight male. Um, I live in a house that's split into two residencies. 
My girlfriend and I live in the basement apartment, and our upstairs neighbors are two attractive 20-something women. We have a good, friendly, neighborly rapport with them. The other night, I was getting some work done at home, and I heard what sounded like sex noises coming from upstairs. I got closer to where the sound was coming from and confirmed that I was hearing one of my neighbors having sex with a guy. I listened for a while uh, and eventually started masturbating and got myself off hearing them fucking. I don't know how to feel about this. I know it's important to not invade people's privacy. I've never had any kind of voyeuristic tendencies and never wanted to spy on people. And I know if I was peeking in their window watching them, that would be a gross invasion of privacy. But I don't know if deliberately listening to my neighbor have sex uh, is any different. It wouldn't bother me if someone did the same hearing me and my girlfriend, whether they be one of my attractive neighbors or a 70-year-old man. But that doesn't mean others uh, would feel the same. So I just don't know how to feel about this. Uh, Does this fall into the category of harmless thrills no one else knows about? Or did I cross a line here? You did nothing wrong. You didn't peek in their windows. When you overheard what sounded like it could have been sex, you didn't tiptoe into the hallway and put your ear down at the bottom of the door where there's that little crack so you could take in more. You took no deliberate steps. You took no proactive steps to invade their privacy. If anything, they burst into your space, your aural space, by having loud-ass sex that you overheard. And like all primates, the sounds of other primates having sex tickles your reptile brain, turns you on, and you cranked one out because of the ambient sex noises that they were creating that were reaching into your apartment and reaching into your brain. You were under no obligation to turn up the music, to put on headphones, to run screaming from your apartment, to provide them with more privacy, to give them more space, to remove yourself from the reach of the sound waves that they were creating in their apartment. No, 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 no. This is a harmless thrill. And it's a risk all people take. If you have sex in a hotel room, if you have sex in a house with the window open, you have sex in an apartment building, someone somewhere, someone nearby might overhear you. Some of those people might be annoyed by what they're overhearing. Some people feel violated when they overhear other people having sex. Some people might be turned on hearing you have sex. That can be a turn on for some people. I think it gets problematic when people who are turned on by the idea of other people seeing or hearing them having sex go out of their way to have sex in places where they might be seen by people who want to see them or don't want to see them or heard by people who want to hear them or don't want to hear them. None of that was happening here. If they weren't being particularly loud, if they didn't move it into the hallway so that you couldn't mistake what was happening and you couldn't avoid what was happening or avoid overhearing what was happening, and if you didn't go out of your way to get closer to those sound waves, yeah, no harm, no foul. They had fun. You had fun. You had fun that they don't know about and will never know about because you're not going to tell them about it because then that would be creepy and that would be a violation. Yeah, you are overthinking this and your overthinking of this is prompting me to really overthink and overexamine, overanalyze it. Nothing happened here. Some people fucked. Somebody overheard them. That turned that person, fellow primate on, as primates overhearing primates typically tend to be turned on by overhearing other primates fucking. And you took care of yourself without alerting them, without bothering them, without intruding on their moment. Yeah, nothing to see here. Nothing to hear here. Move along. Hi, Dan. This is a bisexual man living in the Midwest. 
I'm pretty conflicted about something. I listen to your podcast quite a lot. And uh, recently you were talking about a man who had a Madonna whore complex. I think I have something similar to that. And it's honestly made my sex life a bit of a struggle. But instead of cherishing the Madonna, I cherish the whore, I guess. I hate using those terms on this. For some reason, I'm really, really turned on by a woman who is promiscuous and maybe like a cuckold. I kind of want my the women in my life to be promiscuous. That really turns me on. What I struggle with, though, is when I'm in a relationship and it's loving and I feel really good about it. I have trouble being rough physically. I like to treat the people who I am really close with very tenderly. But in a relationship that is either just getting off the ground or where deep feelings haven't really metastasized, for a better, lack of a better term, I can be really rough then. I can be, and, and that seems to be something that the women I'm with really like. The gentle sex I very much enjoy, but um, I just can't seem to be rough with those I care about. Do you have any insight on how I can, I don't know if I need to rewire my brain, but at least come to better grips with that reality? Because I see myself as this alpha male type of thing, but that which really turns me on with those I actually really deeply care about is a bit on the submissive side. Not that I don't get off on it, but I'd like to be able to be more, more in control. A dude who has the Madonna whore complex problem usually can't be sexual with their partner, with someone they love and worship and cherish. That person's up on a pedestal and they're functionally, Sigmund Freud came up with this theory of the Madonna whore complex and it was uh, about men who are impotent with their wives, with their the people that they loved and cherished and respected and can only be sexual and do these dirty, disgusting things with their dicks with women they didn't care about or women they looked down on, women they regarded as whores. What you describe is a little different. What you describe is there's a kind of sex that you enjoy with someone that you love and are close to after your deep feelings have metastasized and it's more tender. But with someone that you like and you are attracted to but are not in love with, do not have deep feelings for, you enjoy a different kind of sex. You, with that person, aren't capable of enjoying rough sex. And I don't think that's necessarily a problem unless there's someone that you've just met that you're having rough sex with and deep feelings metastasize. And this partner with whom you've been having rough sex and then deep feelings metastasized enjoys rough sex. And if you were incapable then of having the rough sex with them that you had at the start, now that you have feelings for them, that might be a problem in the relationship that requires work and solving and packing. But if all that's going on here is that there's a kind of sex you enjoy with one type of person and a kind of sex you enjoy with a different type of person in a different context, different relationship context, not necessarily a problem. There's just different types of people you enjoy different types of sex with at different times, different circumstances. And that's okay, provided that the people with whom you enjoy rough sex, you are not abusing or looking down on, that it's not about disgust or punishing them because they haven't elicited in you these deep feelings, that there is not some sort of psychological sadism at play here, not sexy, hot, negotiated, BDSME understood compartmentalized sadism, but a desire to punish this person 
where you're not selecting people that you don't care about so that you can have this kind of rough sex with them and then walk away from them having damaged them without without having to wrestle with the moral implications of doing harm to someone. If you're having rough sex with people to harm them and harming people is what turns you on and you're not having that kind of sex with people you care about because you don't want to harm the people you care about, that's a problem. But if all this is is you enjoy one type of sex with in the context of a relationship, more tender and more loving – and with someone you are not in a relationship with, that you still care about, that you're still kind to, whose feelings still matter to you, you are capable of enjoying a very different kind of sex. That's just variance. That's just complexity. There's no pathology there necessarily, as long as you're not harming people, so long as harming people isn't the turn on for you. And you're allowing yourself this outlet to do harm with your dick to certain kinds of women that you don't care about, that you're disgusted by. And with them, you have rough sex. Then you go home and have worshipful, loving, tender sex with this person that you care about. Then that would be a problem. But that's not what you described. So I don't think this is a problem. And I don't think you need to worry about it. So long as you are careful with and caring. So long as you are careful with all of your partners and considerate and solicitous and kind whether it's someone you care about deeply with whom you have tender sex or someone that you enjoy spending time with, but you don't care deeply about. And with that person, you can enjoy rougher sex. Hi, Dan. I'm 32 years old, uh, gay male from Baltimore. I've been in a uh, four year relationship and um, wow, our emotional connection, our companionship is so strong and complimentary. Our sexual chemistry, our physical attraction is almost nil. Not that I don't find him attractive. I find him, you know, handsome as can be, but we just don't, our sex life really never took off even early on in the relationship. And now it's pretty much nil. Nothing's really happening. Um, we're both having trouble really discussing it with each other. And I'm trying to understand if that lack of attraction really just means we're friends or if you can really have a, partnership with someone that maybe you're not sexually attracted to in the way that you'd want to be. Um, so I guess I'm just concerned that we're both extending a relationship that is really based on being companions and not lovers. Um, so I'm interested in your take on staying in a relationship longer than you should possibly. I've seen this with some gay friends. I've seen this in some of my gay friends relationships. I experienced this myself where I was with someone and we were dating and the sex wasn't great or it really wasn't there or dropped off quickly. And what we realized and had a hard time facing up to and admitting because neither of us wanted to break the other's heart was that we were friends and that we had mistaken a friendship kind of attraction and pull for a romantic attraction and pivoting to the friendship from the relationship, you know, when there are feelings and egos involved, that can be difficult. There's a difference between realizing that you know, oh, I should have been friends from the start and realizing that what you have is a companionate relationship in a companionate relationship. There may not be sex, but there is intimacy. There is romance and there is a strong romantic connection, a strong intimate connection. There is physical intimacy. Perhaps if there isn't sex, there's a lot of cuddling or touching uh, in, in some cases, not in all cases. There are some companionate marriages, which are really just married friends. But in the kind of companionate relationships and companionate marriages that we often talk about on the show, it tends to be more toward what I just described, that there's intimacy 
and there's a connection. There's even a romantic connection or a strong romantic connection, but there's no sexual intimacy. But a companionate relationship only works if it's what both people want. A companionate relationship only works if it makes both people happy. If one person is thrilled to be in a companionate relationship without sex and the other person aches for sex, misses sex, longs for sex and longs for sex in the context of that relationship or a relationship. Yeah, that's not going to be a happy companionate relationship. So I can't tell you if you and your boyfriend of four years, four non-sexual years are really friends. That's a question that you two need to figure out together. It's something only you and he can answer. And I also can't tell you if your companionate relationship works because you don't unpack for me how you feel about it. Do you get to have sex outside of this relationship? Does he have sex outside this relationship? If neither of you has sex outside this relationship, do either of you miss sex? Are either of you miserable? If one or the other or both of you are miserable, then the companionate relationship model isn't going to work for you. But if you're both content, you're content to be monogamous in a sexless relationship, which to me means that you only don't have sex with each other, which means you could have sex with anybody else. But for a lot of people who are in monogamous sexless relationship, what they mean is I don't have sex with anybody and you don't have sex with anybody else either. You guys have to decide what your relationship is and what it means. And then you guys need to ask yourself as individuals, am I happy? And you need to come together as a couple and say, as a couple together, are we happy? Does this work for us? And if it works to be in a companionate romantic relationship that's sexless and you're both happy and content with each other, whether it's open or closed, whether you have sex with others or not, then you win Yahtzee. It's working and no one outside your relationship can gainsay or question it. But before you look at the world and say no one outside this relationship can gainsay or question it, you two inside this relationship need to gainsay and question it. Hi, Dan. I have a question about squirting, male squirting. Your last episode featured female squirting, and I have a question about male squirting. I think it's really hot when male ejaculate kind of sprays and it has this great stream associated with it, and mine doesn't, not as much as I would like. And if it does happen, I can't figure out the common denominator to make it happen again. What can guys do that can help with fit with, with male squirting and can help with creating a good, robust, hot stream? Nothing. That's what guys can do about it. Nothing. You make the amount of ejaculate you make over time. As you age, you will make less. When you're young, it tends to shoot farther. As you age, it tends to shoot less far. Please remember that when you watch pornography, that you are watching a group that is kind of unnaturally selected for certain abilities. And sometimes one of those abilities is to spray cum everywhere or to make gallons of ejaculate. Sometimes in porn, that is faked. They will bring in a fake dick that looks very much like the dick of the performer, put it at his crotch, and it's actually kind of a fake jizz squirt gun dick. Not quite CGI. It's more low-tech special effects, but that is a thing that sometimes happens in porn. And if you know to look for it, you can spot it. So don't compare the amount you produce, the amount of ejaculate produced, and the distance it travels to what you're seeing in porn, because it could be fake, or if the guys in porn really can shoot that much and that far, well, they're, have, they have been unnaturally selected for that ability. Unnatural selection is actually a thing, a scientific term that I'm applying to porn production. You make what you make, it goes as far as it goes. The only thing that you can do is to get a lot of fluids, make sure you're always hydrated. You can practice your kegels. Look it up. Basically, when you're peeing, pinch the stream, 
press down on those muscles that can cut off your stream of urine mid-whiz. Those are your Kegel muscles. You can strengthen those, and that may result in your ejaculate going a bit farther, but not much. You're not going to go from an oozer to a shooter. You're not going to go from an average shooter to a geyser because of exercises or diet or hydration. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad, sad news, but that is sometimes my responsibility. Hey, Dan, I'm a 35-year-old straight woman, and I have a question about men and coming. I always read that after men come, they have a refractory period and they lose interest and they can't come again. That brings me to my two questions. One, if my male partner comes first, won't he be grossed out or uninterested in doing anything else to make me come after? I have this like mental block. Is he doing it out of duty? That leads me to my second question. I'm one of the lucky women who can come via PIV if we have lots of foreplay first. The other day he was doing me doggy style and he must have come and kept going. When I came, he stopped. And I was like, what? And he said, oh, I came five minutes ago. I was just able to keep going. Sometimes that happens. I can stay hard and keep going. Is this true? Is this a thing? Can a guy sometimes keep going after coming? And would he want to? I felt so embarrassed for being all loud and into it for five minutes, and he had already come. Anything you can offer for um, thoughts on this would be greatly appreciated. Okay, joining me from Seattle, Washington, to help tackle this call, Nancy Hartunian, producer of the Savage Lovecast. Nancy, you are in Seattle, but I am in Los Angeles. Isn't that right? Yeah, I ain't going nowhere. I'm staying here. <laughs> uh, I'm down in L.A., and I have been for the last couple of weeks. I'm going to be for a couple of more weeks, which is why alert listeners may have noticed that there's some differences in sound quality because we're not in our usual studio, or I'm not in our usual studio, but you, Nancy, are coming to us today live from my usual studio. Yeah, you're so far away. Come home, Dan. Come home. So far away. <laughs> All right. So uh, we didn't just have you on to talk about how come I sound a little bit different lately on the show. Uh, we, you wanted to answer this question, which is not how it works. Usually when I want you to be on the show, I have to drag you kicking and screaming to a microphone. But you basically kicked a chair over on the way to a mic to answer this question with me. Oh, my God. This call drives me crazy. Why is that? What about this call? There's so many calls that could possibly drive you crazy. What is it about this particular question? She's like practically apologizing for having her orgasms and she's like all worried that her her man is disgusted because he's already had his like she's got to focus like a laser beam on her own orgasm and not worry about uh, so much about her man's refractory period it's just classic like uh, i don't know classic like, woman setting aside her own needs and wants and desires and centering or prioritizing her man's needs or wants or desires yeah that <laughs> um, you know, I may have contributed to this. Uh, you know, if she's been a long time listener, we talk about the refractory period a bit. Um, refractory period is the, you know, short amount of time after someone climaxes. Um, usually it's used in reference to, to male persons and their orgasms. And, you know, the body is flooded with prolactin, certain other hormones. The, the, the dude's erection goes away. He loses interest in sex. Things that sounded sexy a second ago, like I'm going to come in your mouth, then you're going to spit that cum, my cum into my own mouth. A guy might think that's hot until he comes in your mouth. And then he's like, yeah, no, I changed my mind. Because <laughs> suddenly things that were hot aren't so hot anymore. Um, but maybe disgust is too, you know, $10 a word for, for that. It's not that someone is revolted by sex or suddenly revolted by their sex partner. They're just not 
as aroused as they were a second ago. They just came, but they could still care about you. They could still want to get you off. And this guy stays hard. He can keep going. So what's the problem? That's right. Some men don't have refractory periods. Some men are capable not just of staying hard, but of having basically a, a, a second orgasm. Some men are multi-orgasmic. It's very, very rare. Been with a lot of guys. Only ever been with one guy. He's a listener to the show. Hey, how are you doing? Only ever been in one guy who could come multiple times in a row where you didn't have to stop. Um, but that's rare. But there are guys out there who can stay hard. And there are guys out there who, you know, they come and they're still hard enough to keep sort of plowing you until you come. And it's not that they're like going, ew, yuck, with every thrust. They're going, I want to see them come. I wanted my partner to get off too. You know, it's like she struck the jackpot in that she's found a man who can keep on going. And yet she still feels guilty about getting her orgasm. Well, a lot of women feel guilty about their own sexual desires and feel like they're not as legitimate as his sexual desires. And often what we see in media and porn and not just porn, but on television and film is the sex end when he comes. That's when it's over. And to keep going is for her to be the lascivious one, for her desires to then take precedence or to be emphasized as as important. And a lot of women don't feel that their sexual desires or needs are as legitimate as his. And I think that's part of what's going on here. Not just she's latched onto this idea of the refractory period and maybe he's disgusted by me or my body or the sounds I'm making now, but that her what she needs, what she wants, her orgasm isn't important, isn't legitimate. And if he's not deriving some pleasure from seeing her come because he already came, then she doesn't get to come. Then her coming is important unless it's a performance for him. And you need to let go of that, caller. Yeah, let go of that, caller. <laughs> Thank you for jumping on the phone, Nancy Hartunian. I miss you. I'll be home soon. All right, you enjoy we- that sunshine. My that sun is pouring rain in fifty degrees here in LA. <laughs> We're I'm in the middle of Slushopolis. <laughs> well, I miss you. I miss Seattle. See you soon. Okay, bye. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with the author of two New York Times bestsellers, Johan Hari, his most recent bestseller, Lost Connections: Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. Thank you for coming in. Oh, it's so great to see you again, Dan. Nice to see you too. So I wanted to have you in to talk about this book. I wanted to have you in for a while because depression is constantly coming up in the calls I get. Before we get to my specific issues and what I wanted to ask you about, can you give us the the premise of the book, the idea behind the book? What are the real causes of depression? I know you've read a book about it, but briefly, <laughs> briefly, give us the elevator pitch uh, and what are some of the unexpected solutions? There were these two mysteries that were really hanging over me and haunting me. I was quite frightened to look into them. Um, The first is, I'm 40 years old. Every year that I've been alive, depression and anxiety have increased here in the United States and across the developed world. And I wanted to understand why. What's going on? Why are so many of us finding it so hard to get through the day? And I wanted to understand this partly for a a more, because of a more personal mystery. When I was a teenager, I went to my doctor and I remember saying that I felt like pain was leaking out of me. I couldn't control it. I couldn't regulate it. Um, I felt quite ashamed of it. And my doctor told me a story that I now realise, with the best of intentions, was pretty oversimplified. My doctor said, well, we know why people feel this way. There's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains. Makes them feel good. Some people are naturally lacking it or got an imbalance. You're clearly one of them. All we need to do is give you these drugs. You're going to be fine. So I started taking an antidepressant called Paxil, and I felt a lot better. Um, and then a couple of months later, this feeling of pain started to come back. So I went back. My doctor said, clearly, I didn't give you a high enough dose. They jacked it up. Uh, again, I felt better. Again, the feeling of pain came back. And I was really in this cycle until I was taking the maximum possible dose for 13 years, at the end of which 
I was still acutely depressed and I was asking myself, well, what's going on here? Because I'm doing everything I'm being told to do Mm -hmm. by the main story our culture tells. So for my book, Lost Connections, I ended up going on this big journey all over the world, over 40,000 miles. I wanted to sit with the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety and what solves them. And people with really a wide range of perspectives from an Amish village in Indiana, because the Amish have very low levels of depression, to a city in Brazil that banned advertising to see if that would make people feel better, to a lab in Baltimore where they were giving people people's psychedelics to see if that would help. And I learned loads of things. But the heart of what I learned is there's scientific evidence for nine causes of depression and anxiety. Two of them are indeed biological. Um, your so, gene, so two of them are chemical? And- not chemical, biological, which is a slight distinction. So your genes can make you more vulnerable to these problems, just like some people find it easier to put on weight than others. Mm-hmm. And there are real changes in your brain, which I don't think it's right to describe as a chemical imbalance, but are real changes that do make it harder to get out uh, once that process has begun. But most of the causes of depression and anxiety for which there's very strong scientific evidence are not in our biology. They're factors in the way we're living. And that helps us to understand why it's been increasing because humans haven't biologically transformed in the last 40 years. Um, But more importantly, once you understand the real causes, it opens up a whole new set of solutions that we should be offering to people alongside, not in in place of, the option of chemical antidepressants. So so to be clear, before we move on, there there are some people who do benefit from antidepressants. Uh, Maybe those are the people where there's some biological root cause that address it. But you're saying that there are seven other causes that those antidepressants may not be the right medicine. They may not actually be helpful for people. They weren't helpful for you, ultimately. There's strong evidence that chemical antidepressants have a modest effect that is real, but modest. One of the things that most helped me to think about this was I went to interview this South African psychiatrist called Derek Summerfield, mm-hmm. who happened to be in Cambodia in 2001 when they first introduced chemical antidepressants for the people in that country. And the local doctor... And if you know anything about the history of Cambodia, there's <laughs> plenty to be fucking depressed about. Exactly. And, and the local doctors, the Cambodians, had never heard of these, these drugs. So they said to him, well, what are antidepressants? And he explained. They said to him, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of herbal remedy, right? Like St. John's wort or something. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields. And one day he stood on a landmine and he got his leg blown off. So they gave him an artificial leg. And a few months later, he goes back to work in these rice fields. But uh, apparently, um, it's very painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial leg. I'm guessing it was pretty traumatic for obvious reasons. The guy starts to cry all day, eventually refuses to get out of bed. He develops classic depression. They said to Dr. Summerfield, well, that's, that's when we gave him an antidepressant. And he said, what? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realised that his pain made sense. It had causes in his life. They figured after a while of talking to him that if they bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this position that was causing him so much distress. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression was gone. They said to Dr. Summerfield, so you see, Dr. That Cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? Now, if you've been raised to think about depression the way we have, it sounds like a joke. I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. She gave me a cow. But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively... You get a cow and you get a cow and you get a good <laughs> like Oprah, but exactly. it's all fine. <laughs> but what, exactly. And what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the leading medical body in the world, the World Health Organization, has been trying to tell us for years. If you're depressed... If you're anxious, you're not weak, you're not crazy, 
You're not a machine with broken parts. You're a human being with unmet needs. And what you need is love and practical support to get those needs met. You know, everyone listening to your show knows they've got natural physical needs, right? Obviously, you need food, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd be in real trouble real fast. Mm -hmm. But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. We're social animals. Exactly. You You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense, right? Our culture is good at lots of things. I'm glad to be alive today. But we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs. And what's not the only thing that's going on, it's the main reason this has been going up year after year. And this is going to take us to a dark place if we keep pulling on this thread because... We live in a more atomized culture. People are more separated. People, you know, despite social media, feel more isolated than ever and are looking for something that gives their life meaning. And along comes this motherfucker with a red hat and a shitty slogan and makes people feel like going to a rally and they're part of something larger and perhaps wider than themselves. And, you know, when you look at Brexit, when you look at Trump, do you see... Depression and anxiety, uh, which you say are rooted in isolation, um, weaponized politically. Is Trump an anti? Is Trump a cow? Is Trump an antidepressant for a lot of these people who are going to his rallies and feeling connected and feeling lifted up and feeling like they have a common enemy in the media or in the libs? In the run up to the election, the presidential election. I spent some time in Cleveland with a wonderful group here from Los Angeles, from here in LA, the LA LGBT Center, who were doing this deep canvassing work. And we ended up, one day we were on this street in West Cleveland, where a third of the houses were demolished, a third were abandoned, a third still had people living in them. And there's one door we knocked on and we were chatting to a woman who I guess from looking at her was 60. I discovered, in fact, she was the same age as me. I was 37 at the time. And she was very angry. There was no way she was going to vote Hillary Ohio Clinton. ages, people. <laughs> she was very angry. She was, you know, quite articulate, actually. She knew quite a lot. Um, and at one point, she, she said this thing that really haunted me. She, she was talking about what the area used to be like for her parents and grandparents. And she meant to say, when I was young. What she actually said is, when I was alive. And it really knocked me back, right? And I thought, yeah, that's how a lot of people feel. Now, in those circumstances where people, in this culture, enormous numbers of people have been deprived of the things that are necessary to have a good life, right? Um, through, Through no fault of their own. In that situation, you will get a significant number of people who will say, burn the fucking house down then, right? Mm -hmm. Now, it is not the solution to burn the house down. That woman's life will be significantly worse and is significantly worse now because of Donald Trump. But I think you're onto something really important. Let's think about loneliness, right? So you mentioned that we're a social species. I spent a lot of time talking to the leading expert in the world on loneliness, Professor John Cassiopo, who explained to me, we are the loneliest society here in the United States that has ever been. There's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could turn to in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none. Right? There are more people who have nobody to turn to than any other option. And Professor Cassiopo said to me, why are we alive? Right? Why is everyone listening to your show alive? One key reason is that our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down. They weren't faster than the animals they took down. But they were much better at banding together into groups than cooperating. Right? Just like bees evolved to live in a hive, humans evolved to live in a tribe. And we are the first humans 
ever to try to disband our tribes. And you're right that that makes people, it is intolerable to live alone and stripped of meaning and being humiliated at work and a lot of the things that women and other people are are facing. In that situation, some people will turn to the kind of hollow, bombastic version of belonging that is offered by, by Trump. Now, there are better well, solutions. What Trump is offering is a new tribe. Yeah. A tribe it, organized around racial resentment, a tribe organized around bigotry. But yeah. you know, we, this isn't a new. Yeah. This isn't a new thing. This is what we saw after the First World War in Germany. Was Hitler came along and created a new tribe for the Germans. And so, one of the things that's really important to me, um, one of the things I learned so much in the research for Lost Connections, is to understand depression and anxiety are meaningful signals. Right. The problem with what we've done up to now by talking about it almost exclusively in biological terms, is what that says to people is your pain doesn't mean anything. It's like a glitch in a computer program, right? Mm -hmm. That is not true. That woman is not wrong to feel like shit. Your listeners who are depressed and anxious, they're not wrong to feel like that. Now, there's a biological component to that for some people, but overwhelmingly this is being driven by the fact that their pain makes sense. So are they at fault then? Like if if it's isolation and people are isolating themselves, are you saying that people are... People aren't isolating themselves, right? It's not like in the same way that we know, look, obesity has massively gone up, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just that suddenly everyone got lazy and, and whatever the things people say about obese people. What happened? Our food supply system is a disaster. We built cities you can't walk or bike around. It's not that people in Lexington, Kentucky are just inherently lazy and people in Copenhagen are inherently go-getters, right? It's mm-hmm. that people in Lexington can access healthy things in a lot of cases and it's really easy to do that in Copenhagen. Something very similar has happened with depression and anxiety. So let's look at one of the solutions, right? What we've got to be doing is offering people better solutions. When I think about the the nine causes of depression, anxiety that I write about in Lost Connections, you know, one of the ones we mentioned is loneliness. And I, and I was really keen to think, well, what are the cows for the things that are fucking us up, right? <laughs> what are the cows for the things that make it? So I'll give you one of the heroes of my book is an amazing man, a doctor in East London, where I'm from, as you can tell from my uh, weird voice, um, called Sam Everington. And Sam was really uncomfortable. He had loads of patients coming to him with terrible depression and anxiety. And like me, he thinks chemical antidepressants have some role to play, but he could see two things. Firstly, they were depressed for perfectly good reasons in most cases. And secondly, antidepressants were taking the edge off for most of them, but they weren't solving the problem, right? Most of them did become depressed again. So Sam decided to pioneer a different approach that's now spreading throughout the world. One day, a woman came to see him called Lisa Cunningham, who'd been shut away in her home with crippling depression and anxiety for seven years. I got to know Lisa later. And he said to Lisa... Don't worry, I'm going to carry on giving you this drug, but I'm also, I'm also going to prescribe something else. Behind the suite of doctor's offices, there was an area that was known as Dog Shit Alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like. Just kind of scrubland that dogs are going shit in. He'd said to her, he said to Lisa, what I'd like you to do is come and turn out a couple of times a week on Dog Shit Alley. I'm going to come too. We're going to meet with a group of other depressed and anxious people. And we're going to find something to do together, right? First time the group met, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety. But the group starts talking and they're like, what could we do together? They decided they were going to learn gardening and turn this area into a garden. These inner city East London people like me, they don't fucking anything about gardening, right? They start to look at YouTube. They start to read books. They start to get their fingers in the soil. They start to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's a lot of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a really powerful antidepressant. But something just as important happens. They start to form a tribe. They start to care about each other. If one of them doesn't show up, the others go and look for them and say, hey, are you okay? And they do what human beings do when we're part of tribes. They start to solve each other's problems, right? Mm-hmm. And the way Lisa put it to me, 
As the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. There was a study in Norway of a very similar... They had a sense of accomplishment and a sense of mission. And they weren't just, you know, being brought together into a support group to sit on chairs, staring at each other and running their mouths. They were working on something. They were trying to not bring an animal down like a tribe would have on the savannah (laughs) tens of thousands of years ago, but they were bringing down Dog Shit Alley or bringing back Dog Shit Alley and making something better out of it. But they were working on a project that really took the focus off each other and themselves under some larger goal. Exactly. It was like being freed from an addiction to rumination mm-hmm. and into... And people started saying, what a beautiful garden. The, the, I mean, uh, there was a study in Norway of a very similar program that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. And this is something I saw all over the world, from San Francisco to Sydney to Sao Paulo. The most effective strategies for dealing with depression and anxiety are the ones that deal with the reasons why we feel like such shit in the first place. But to do that, you've got to make the shift that the chief doctor at the United Nations said we needed to make two years ago now. He said we need to move from talking primarily about chemical imbalances to talking about power imbalances, imbalances in the way we live. There are so many factors in the way we live that are causing this crisis. If you are controlled at work, you are much more likely to become depressed and anxious. I talk about some of the solutions to that. If you experience childhood trauma and you've never had a chance to release the shame about that, That makes you much more likely to become depressed and anxious. And actually giving people safe places to release that shame is an incredibly powerful antidepressant. There's lots of other causes and solutions that I talk about in the book. But but in a sense, what we've got to have first is a change in our understanding of what this is. If you're taught this is just a problem in your brain, Mm -hmm. now there are real aspects in the brain. It's important to talk about that. There are real biological factors. But if all you're told is that, which is all I was told by my doctor, it can actually cut you off from finding these deeper and more meaningful So you're arguing that there's some people who are essentially misdiagnosed, that it's not chemical, that it's not in the brain, it's social, and that there are people who benefit from, you know, there are people in my life who I love very much who've benefited tremendously from antidepressants, um, who have strong social connections, and still they were incredibly depressed, they weren't isolated. And I don't want to erase those people that that, that modern medicine and pharma actually has helped. Yeah. But... And this, I think, is very convincing that we live a life now that isolates us in ways that that could cause us to get fucking sad. Something I was taught in the research for Lost Connections that was so helpful to me and quite challenging because it made me think again about my own life. So everyone listening to your show knows that junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, right? Mm-hmm. I say it's with no sense of superiority. I lived on KFC for basically my whole <laughs> 20s. But the, I think when you first met me, Dan, I was basically a KFC addict. I ate a box <laughs> of uh, Lucky Charm cereal last night. Oh, my God. I'm, you're literally giving me cravings. Um, but what's interesting is... Um, a kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. Uh, for thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money and status and how you look to other people, you're going to feel like shit, right? But actually, weirdly, no one had scientifically investigated this until an incredible man I got to know called Professor Tim Kasser, who I interviewed a lot for my book. And Professor Kasser has shown two really important things. The more you think life is about money and showing off the kind of values that social media kind of inculcate in us, the more you think life is about how you look to other people in this hollow, external way. We are in Los Angeles. We are, <laughs> the Kardashians are somewhere. <laughs> they may even be in the building. Exactly. And the more you live like a Kardashian in that sense, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious. He's also shown as a society, as a culture, we've become much more driven by those by those those ways of being. There are the Kardashians and then all of our Instagrammers, everyone who wishes they were the Kardashians or our mini Kardashians are attempting to become Kardashians who are Ex- living for display and to show off 
and you know to express that kind of social power and often pro- project a kind of economic power at a moment when so many people are economically disadvantaged and fucked that's such a good way of putting it and i think the the, the key to understand that is that that is a way of living that doesn't meet our deeper needs, right? It's a banal insight to say no one listening to your show is going to lie on their deathbed and think about all the likes they got on Instagram or all the shoes they bought, right? I don't think you can say that definitively. I'm sure there's somebody out there listening <laughs> well, who on their deathbed will be thinking, oh, that one post, I got 20,000 likes. And I guarantee that person is a miserable motherfucker, right? <laughs> and, and he, 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 you know, I think, but, but the way Professor Kasser put it to me, I never forget him saying this to me. He said, um, we live in a machine that is designed to get us to neglect what is important about life, right? More 18-month-old children know what the McDonald's M means than know their own last name. But Professor Cass did this incredible experiment, really simple. People can try this in their own lives. Just got people to get together once every couple of weeks and talk about what is actually meaningful in life to them. Moments they have actually felt satisfied, happy. Some people it was playing music. Some people it was writing. Some people it was running, whatever it was. Double penetration. Whatever your thing is. <laughs> and just, I don't Managed know if that came up in those ended, Minneapolis yeah. uh, <laughs> meetings, but I'm sure people are being doubly penetrated as we speak in Minneapolis. But the, Some the, people listening to our voices right exactly, now. Exactly, literally. Although I think, yeah, well... Anyway, please there, finish yeah. your point. Um, just that act of getting people to meet once every couple of weeks for four months led to a really significant reduction in people's junk values, which we know leads to lower depression and anxiety. And it made me realize, you know, for many years when I felt depressed and anxious, my solution was primarily the solution we're taught in this culture, which is earn more money, show off, um, you know, do something impressive, impressive in this external sense. One of the things I learned is now, when I feel these painful feelings coming, which I still do sometimes, I try to make myself do something that I find uh, intrinsically meaningful, which is very often just leave your phone at home and go and sit with someone and listen to them and be present for them in such a broken up, lonely culture. It's fucking phones. I want to get to the question that I really wanted to put to you, um, but God, our fucking phones. I never feel as good as I do when I leave my fucking phone at home and even just take the New Yorker and go sit in the park near our house and like get through an entire New Yorker without looking at fucking Twitter. I wanted to understand this. I went to the first ever internet rehab center, not far from where you live, just Spokane <laughs> in Washington. And I'm actually, the minute I arrived, I get out of the clearing of the woods where it is and absolutely instinctively, I glanced at my phone and felt really fucking pissed off. I couldn't check my emails. And I was like, you're in the right place, yeah. right? Okay, well, uh, let me, sure. I, I want to get to, to what I want. Yeah. My professional anxiety, I'm not depressed, but I get anxious about this. I get so many calls from people in relationships that sound shitty, that sound terrible, that sound like relationships they need to get out of. And then invariably... What comes out of their mouths next is my partner is depressed and anxious. This person, this relationship isn't good. I am not happy, uh, but I can't leave because they are depressed, you know, and sitting in their mother's basement. Often it's, you know, they, they describe somebody who's isolated, whether they've isolated themselves or whether the culture is set up in such a way that they are being isolated. Um, they're isolated, you know, sits all day in the basement and plays video games and doesn't ever go out, doesn't want to go out. And I often hesitate to tell people to leave people who are depressed because you're supposed to, if you're the partner, swoop in and take care of this person and save them and rescue them. In your professional opinion, having written this book, what should I be telling people who are in shitty relationships that my like sex and relationship guru hat says, end it, go, dump the motherfucker already. And yet that means leaving someone who's depressed and 
anxious because they're isolated and contributing to the isolation that may have caused the depression and anxiety in the first place. What are the obligations of the partner of a depressed person in a shitty relationship that needs to end? I think one of the most terrible things we've done about our response to depression and anxiety is that we put the onus for solving it entirely on the depressed person and the tiny number of fragile relationships they have, right? This is part of the the, the, the cruelty of what we do. And actually, there's overwhelming evidence that, that depression has all sorts of causes that lie in the way we live, right? That are not the fault of the individual and not the fault of the individual's loved ones. The main thing we have to do is deal with those factors, right? Now, you and I have lived through... Big so basically, you're saying, okay, you can't leave that person until you've successfully re-engineered society in such a way that people no, are no not longer... No, not at all. What I'm saying is the primary response we have to have is to pull back and say, okay, this should not be happening to people. We shouldn't be putting them in this position. It's the same way that, you know, let's think about the biggest cause of deaths in the entire United States is car accidents, right? It's just rivaling overdose now, but it's still car accidents. Primarily, our response to, if you go back to when cars are first introduced, people say, oh, right, this should just be dealt with by individuals. Individuals should be told to drive more safely, right? Now we have speed limits and airbags and seatbelts and DUIs and we have driving tests and all of those things, right? So you could say to someone, okay, someone who's just plowed their car into somebody else and killed them, what's my advice to them? Okay, my main advice would be do we that. should have seatbelts, airbags, you okay. know, right. uh, speed limits, all of these DUIs. We should have all of these things that minimize that catastrophe from happening. When the disaster has happened, the truth is there are no good options, right? If you're in a disaster zone and there are no good options and no one is helping anyone else, which is where we are for a lot of people, um, the truth is isolated, atomized individuals who've been taught life is about money and showing off, who've, who've been traumatized, who, whose workplaces humiliate and control them. The truth is there's going to be a lot of depression in that society and those people aren't crazy. So right? what do I tell people in relationships with those people? The people who are in relations with those people who are depressed and isolated and anxious, uh, who, you know, and their partner isn't depressed, isn't isolated, isn't anxious, <laughs> wants to fuck out or needs to get the fuck out I mean, of that I've relationship. Because it does yeah. sometimes feel to me like, some people are legitimately depressed. Some people are playing depression and anxiety as cards in order to control someone. You can't leave me. You're a terrible person if you leave me because I am depressed. You know, we had a lot of addiction in my family. And although addiction is, I mean, I think part of what addiction is, is a way of trying to deal with deep pain. It's a way of trying not to be present in your life. It's also a way of controlling other people. It it can be. So this is something I thought about a lot in relation to some of the people I love who, who have addiction problems. And the truth is, my advice would be give as much love as you can bear to give, but that probably won't be enough, right? If you if you live in a society that is driving people towards depression, individual acts of love can feel like running up a down escalator, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not to say there's no value in them, and you can run up a down escalator and get to the top. It's not impossible. But the, the primary thing I would say that we... It's a bit like, the analogy that comes to me is, let's imagine we're in the 1930s and someone says, well, I've got a gay person I love who's really fucking miserable and suicidal. What should I do to help that person? The main thing I would say you should do is fight for equality for gay people so that that person isn't risking going to prison, so that person is free to get married. Mm-hmm. All of the things that you've been amazing part of the fight for, right? Now, does that mean I would say to that person, don't help that actual individual? No, of course not. In individual situations, you have to pay attention to the individual, listen to them, see if there's something that helps them. But the biggest thing that's reduced gay depression among gay people is the revolution in equality for gay people, right? right? Where we're not being arrested and beaten up and treated like shit in the way we were, right? And I think in a similar way, um, 
of course, give as much compassion as you can, but no one is obliged to sacrifice themselves. Some of the people I love who have addiction problems, some of them I've been able to stay in their life and do the best that I can. And some of them, it was unbearable. And I couldn't, right. you can't sacrifice yourself. And I'm, sh- I'm not proud to say that. And I think too often but we... boy, do I get grief when I say that to people. Well, too often, I think you don't do this ever, but, and I listen to you talk about this a lot of time, but too often there's a glib reflex which says, oh, someone's got an addiction problem, cut them off, right? And to me... That's the importing of the logic of the drug war into our private lives. But right? you got to know when to say when. Exactly. Sometimes, so, some some yeah. people, you know, live in a burning building because they like the attention. Some people. That's what I see. People with some, you know, some people have addiction issues. I don't think they're performative. People have legit addiction issues, but you know, there is. And you know, I'm from a family with a lot of people who had addiction issues. There were people who limped along keeping things bad enough that everybody had to dance attendance on them and, and their problems and take care of them. And it was a shitty manipulative way of asking people for their attention and, and, and you know, negative attention seeking and, 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 and negative care seeking. And, and, you know, you reach a limit with a person like that where you can't set your entire life aside just to take care of someone whose wounds are self-inflicted, you know, who's in a burning building because they keep pumping gas into it, right? I, I would, and, I, and the same yeah. applies in relationships, not just familiar relationships. People end up in a romantic relationship and there's a tremendous amount of pressure, particularly on women in romantic relationships, to fix and save, to fix and save. And if you pull a ripcord and bail, you're a terrible person, particularly if the person that you pulled that ripcord on and, and the relationship you bailed from, that person that you left is in a bad way. You abandon them. It's not okay. And I get this call all the time. People that are in a relationship, that person is depressed, that per- things are terrible, things have been terrible for a long time. And they, and I find myself feeling hesitant because I don't want to be judged. I don't want people to scream and yell at me for encouraging people to be monsters. But I find myself often having to say to people, I get it. Your partner's miserable and unhappy. Leaving them is going to make it worse. Go. I think. What you're saying is really important and there's no general rule in this, but it helps me to think, also I wrote a previous book about addiction called Chasing the Screaming about what causes addiction. And there's this guy in Amsterdam, Professor Peter Cohen, who says we shouldn't call addiction, we shouldn't call it addiction, we should call it bonding. Human beings have an innate need to bond. And when we're happy and psychologically healthy and we've had good childhoods, we'll bond and connect with the people around us. But some people can't do that either because they're isolated or traumatized or beaten down by life or they haven't been given the psychological skills to do that. And in that instance, a lot of what people do, they'll bond with something, right? Now, that might be cocaine, that might be alcohol, that might be porn, it might be gambling. Exactly. It might be President Trump, uh, words that pain me to pass my mouth. Um, the, the, but they will bond with something. And, and, and we know the evidence is very clear on this. The best solution, and I appreciate this is not a solution that is available to isolated individuals, but in, in most cases, but the best solution is to change the environment, right? So, well, but an individual can be, have their ass dragged down to dog shit alley. But I don't imagine that everybody who was sent to dog shit alley stayed there. No, most of them did. Um, there is a So if you're with somebody, they're depressed yeah. and isolated and playing video games all day and won't leave the house and expect you to dance attendance on them, you can drag them to Dog Shit Alley and say, build a garden, meet some people, get out there. Should you make that a condition of continuing to be in the relationship? Look, I'm not sticking around if there, there you're a- just going to coast in fr- on the couch in front of those video games for the rest of your life. But, you know, if you go join up with the group that's 
remaking Dog Shit Alley, maybe I'll stick around a little bit longer. Is that manipulative on the part of the I, no, I don't, I, non-depressed partner? No, I don't think it's manipulative to, to have your own sense of what you need as an individual. But, but can you use a relationship as leverage to convince someone to go get help? Absolutely. And I have done that in my, my own life. And I think that's perfectly sensible but i think there has to be one option along as part of a menu of options but, but people and, I, I want to stay there for just yeah, a second sure because i do get in trouble for saying this you know you tell someone that i can't continue to hang out with you and be your friend if you're going to stay in this shitty awful relationship that you won't stop complaining about i can't continue to be with you as a romantic partner if you can continue to isolate yourself when your isolation is contributing to your depression i can't continue to hang out with you we can't be friends we can't go out clubbing because you abuse drugs you don't use drugs and so so I have to like cut you out of my life. But that is a legitimate thing to do, to, to ax someone from your life because they won't get out of that shitty relationship. They won't stop abusing drugs or get the help they need to stop abusing drugs because they won't get off the fucking couch and get their ass down to dark shit alley. There's a step I would take before that. Mm-hmm. We, Dr. Robert Ander, who did an amazing um, research program in San Diego, said to me, when someone is behaving in ways that appear self-destructive, whether it's obesity, addiction or whatever, he said, we need to stop asking what's wrong with you and start asking what happened to you, right? He was part of this amazing research program that began in the mid-1980s. A doctor called Vincent Felitti in San Diego, who I got to know years later, was approached by Kaiser Permanente, the main not-for-profit medical provider in in San Diego, and they um, said, look, we've got this problem, we don't know what to do. Um, We need your help. Obesity is going up and up and up. Nothing we're trying is working. They gave him quite a big budget and said, just figure out what the fuck we can do, Right. So he starts working with 250 extremely obese people, people who weigh more than 400 pounds. And um, he tries those things that don't work. And one day he has this idea, which seems like, and in some ways is quite a stupid idea. He asks himself, okay, what would happen if really obese people literally stopped eating and we gave them vitamin C shots and get scurvy, we gave them nutritional supplements, would they just burn through the fat supplies in their body and lose weight? So with a shitload of medical supervision, they start doing it. And in one sense, crazily, initially it works, right? There's a woman who I'm going to call Susan to protect her medical confidentiality who goes down from being more than 400 pounds to 138 pounds. Incredible. People are celebrating. Dr. Felidi's being told he saved her life. And then one day something happened that no one expected. Susan cracked. She goes to KFC or whatever it was. She starts obsessively eating. And, and Vincent called her in and said, you know, Susan, what happened? She looks down. She says, I don't know. I don't know. He said, well, did anything happen that day that didn't happen any other day? Turns out something had happened that day that had never happened to her. A man had hit on her in a bar. Not in a horrible predatory way, in quite a nice way, but she felt really frightened. That's when Dr. Felidi asked her something he'd never asked her before or any of his patients, he said, when did you start to put on your weight? In her case, it was when she was 11. He said, well, did anything happen when you were 11 that didn't happen when you were nine, didn't happen when you were 13? What? She said, actually, uh, yeah, that, that's when my grandfather started to rape me. He started to interview everyone in the program. He found that 55% of them had put on their extreme weight in the aftermath of being sexually abused. Astonishing, right? And he's really puzzled by this, but Susan explains it to him. She said, overweight is overlooked, and that's what I need to be right? That this thing that seems so irrational and destructive, and is obviously really bad for you, was actually performing an important role. It's protecting her from sexual attention. The reason I mention it in this context is, I remember the first time I went to see Dr. Felitti, he's a lovely, good man. You would really like him, Dan. I remember shaking with anger, right? I actually ended the interview early because I was worried I would hit him. Oh my gosh. And I was like, why the fuck am I so angry with this lovely, good man who's done... When I was a child, I'd experienced some very extreme things from an adult in my life. 
I didn't want to think about that. I realized now what, why I had clung to this simplistic biological story because I didn't want to give this individual power over me. But the reason I'm really glad I stayed with it is because of what Dr. Felitti discovered next, right? So everyone who went for medical care in San Diego for a whole year for anything, headaches, uh, broken leg, anything, was, was given two questionnaires, right? First part asked, did you experience any of these 10 bad things when you were a kid? Things like abuse, neglect. Mm-hmm. And the second part asked, have you had any of these problems as an adult? Things like obesity, depression, suicide attempts, addiction. And the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, did this massive study on it. And the figures were just incredible. For every category of childhood trauma that you experienced, you were way more likely to become depressed and anxious. If you had six of those categories, you were 3,100% more likely to have attempted suicide and 4,600% more likely to have an addiction problem. But the thing that is so important about this, where I think it's really relevant to this dilemma that you face, quite rightly is what they discovered next. If you had indicated on this form that you would experience some form of childhood trauma, your doctor was told, don't call them in, but next time they come back to you, say to them something like this, I see that when you were a child, you were sexually abused. I'm really sorry that happened to you. Uh, Would you like to talk about it? Mm -hmm. And about 40% of people didn't want to talk about it, and about 60% did. And they wanted to talk about it on average for five minutes. Just that five minutes of an authority figure saying, I'm really sorry. And explaining that their pain made sense, right? That alone led to a really significant fall in depression and anxiety. And I guess the reason why I slightly recoil from the advice, which is just... I'm I'm caricaturing what you're saying. I know this is not what you're saying. But the people who say, just cut them off, is I would say there's an intermediate step, which is try to help the individual understand why they are this way and to release the shame they feel. Right. right? My, my first response isn't just cut them off, but there's yeah, a no, point you're at not like which this. Yeah. that's your only option. There's a point at which you know that thing they say you're on airlines? allowed to cut someone off yeah. without being a terrible person. Of course, you know that thing they say on airlines, um, fit your own oxygen mask first, right? right? No one is obliged to sacrifice themselves to save someone else, right? And if the experience... Once you've tried all the loving steps of helping them change their lives, if that's available to you, uh, helping them understand their behavior and gain insight on their behavior and release the shame around why they might be behaving that way. If having tried all those steps, your life is still being dragged down and you're not, you know, of course, I have been in that position with someone who had an addiction problem and I'm no longer with that person. Mm -hmm. Right. And that was absolutely agonizing. A relationship isn't a trap and it's not a doctor-patient relationship. A friendship is not a doctor-patient relationship. A romantic relationship is not a doctor-patient relationship. There are times and you know, I've been with my husband for 24 years. We've had crises. You know, we've had to help each other through some shit. Uh, I'm not like a bolt at the first sign of trouble person. I couldn't have been with somebody for a quarter of a century if I were. But in my role here, what keeps coming up for me, and I, I get grief from this, you know, I get emails from people telling me I'm a terrible person because I encourage someone to leave someone who was hurting. It doesn't matter how many times that person attempted to help that person. There's this idea in the culture that you are obligated to stay forever, even if somebody is drowning and there's no way to save them and you're going to get pulled down too. I think there's lots of countervailing trends in the culture. There's this countervailing culture that I think you're totally right is disproportionately on women. It doesn't look after these people. I think it's also a culture, a kind of tenderization of the culture that says just discard anyone who's not immediately pleasing you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a whole range of things happening. But I, I guess the main thing I would stress is the way there are key aspects of how our society is functioning that are putting far more people in the dilemma that you're facing than, than, than needs to happen, right? 
Uh, obviously, we could talk about this forever. I, I find the whole subject fascinating, but I wanted to uh, take a couple questions from callers with you and give some advice that touches on depression. Brilliant. Hi, Dan. I'm a 40-year-old cisgendered female from the East Coast. I'm calling about a situation I have with a platonic friend of mine who is in her mid-50s. I have been friends with her for about five years, and she's part of my friend circle, although she's not a best friend. She has a history of depression and ADD and is significantly obese, which leads her to be emotionally fragile and physically limited as a person. Within the past year, she has suffered significant loss one of her parents and her beloved pet within the same week. She's been single for the majority of her adult life, but has close relationships with her family in the area and her remaining parent. With that being said, she's a very kind-hearted person who would do anything to help anyone in need. The reason I'm calling is that I want to maintain and keep her as a friend, but some of her behaviors are very irritating to me and some in our friend circle. Many of our circle have noticed this and have wondered what we can do to help. For instance, whenever she enters the space, she never stops talking. I mean, literally never. She's either talking at someone or just talking to herself or anything that might listen. During a regular dinner conversation, she allows others to talk for about 10% of the time without cutting them off, interrupting, or diverting the conversation to something she is more interested in or something about her. Rarely, if ever, she asks questions about someone else's day, life, or experience. And even if the question is asked, it is often a way to turn the conversation back to herself. On a side note, she is in a performance-related career, so being on stage is her forte. My friends and I are at the point of, de- of desperation with this behavior and some others, but this being the most problematic. After spending an evening or an afternoon with her, we find ourselves speculating the reason for this behavior and ways we can help her become aware of it without being hurtful. As she's the oldest person in our friend group, it feels socially awkward to correct her behavior. Should we confront this behavior or just let it go? Should we distance ourselves? How do we let her know that a dinner party is not her stage? So what would you advise this woman to do and her friends to do about this particular friend? There's really interesting evidence about the best ways to release people from grief. I was listening to it, I thought about this really shocking thing that happened in the 70s, I think reveals something really profound. So the 1970s, the American Psychiatric Association, the APA, decided to standardize for the first time how depression was diagnosed across the United States. So... They send out a list of 10 symptoms, pretty obvious things, crying all the time, feeling worthless, that kind of thing. And they say, psychiatrists all over the country, and they say, if your patient shows more than six of these symptoms for more than two weeks, diagnose them as mentally ill and do what you can, right? And a short while after, doctors start to come back and go, look, we've got a bit of a problem here. If we use this guideline the way you've told us to, we're going to have to diagnose every grieving person as depressed because these are also the symptoms of grief, right? Mm -hmm. So they're like, oh shit, that's not what we meant. So they invented something that became known as the grief loophole. They said, okay, if anyone shows more than six of these 10 symptoms for more than two weeks, diagnose them as mentally ill, unless someone they love has died in the last year, in which case they're not crazy, they're not mentally ill, um, just do, you know, that's just a natural process, right? But this opened a really big question, which is, well, hang on a minute. You're saying depression is just a brain disease, um, that is, has, is irrational, except there's one cause in life where it's perfectly understandable. Why is that the only situation, right? Why not uh. if you're stuck in a job you hate? Why not if you've lost your job? Why not if you're homeless? This opened a whole question the APA just did stuck not want Stuck in a relationship that makes you miserable. Exactly. The APA just did not want to have that debate. So they started narrowing and narrowing the grief, what the grief loophole. So initially it was a year, then it was six months, then it was, then they cut it down to two weeks, right? So you're allowed two weeks where you feel like shit. And then if you're crying all the time and showing these other symptoms, you're mentally ill, you should be drunk. 
drugged, right? As an amazing woman called Professor Joanne Cassiatore, who's done great, great research on this, who lost her own child in terrible circumstances and was really appalled to see that grieving people are, you know, really routinely just drugged and told they're mentally ill when in fact they're grieving, right? So partly what I'd say is people need space to grieve, but also one of the things that this kind of narcissistic behaviour that she's describing... She won't shut up. Yeah. This is a a wonderful um, professor called Bill Richards described... So one of the things this is, is addiction to the self, right? Mm -hmm. And there are certain techniques we know that reduce this addiction to the self. So we know that a feeling of awe... Uh, a feeling of really reduces your sense of being trapped in your own ego. So exposure to the natural world. I would take this friend and go to Yellowstone Park, go to beautiful natural landscapes. It's very hard for people. You have to be a really hardcore narcissist confronted with beautiful natural landscapes to not have moments of relief from that. I just just think of all the people who are falling off cliffs and waterfalls (laughs) because they've gone to a beautiful natural environment and they're trying to get a selfie. Right, those motherfuckers. And they keep dropping off. So I'm I'm sure like nature does have the power to strike awe into our hearts, but it's not foolproof. It's absolutely true. But the main thing I would say is so we know that recovery from grief is very closely related to the meaning that people can construct from their loss if you feel you have lost someone and no one acknowledges it and there's no meaning and that was just that okay but wait wait is it the responsibility of this friendship group to sort of treat this woman who annoys the fuck out of everyone as if she's dog shit alley. She's this project. They're all going to work on together. They're all going to see if she wants Depends to take acid. They're all going to take her to well, Yellowstone. They're all going to help her process her grief or, 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 or turn her grief into meaning. And maybe that will make her less depressed and therefore less annoying. I would say friendship is a deep form of commitment. And part of the commitment, I don't know this woman, so I don't know enough about her, but part of the commitment is if something goes wrong in your life, your friends will show up and love you and help you. And if something goes wrong in their life, you'll do the same for them, right? It's reciprocity. Exactly. And I don't know enough about this woman, but what I would say is, so for example, a a, a good friend of mine, um, uh, her partner died in the most terrible way, saving their son from drowning. Oh my God. In Jamaica. And she wrote an amazing book about it called All at Sea. Her name's Decca Aikenhead. And she set up a charity that, so basically almost no children, almost no one can swim in Jamaica. It's this horrific legacy of slavery um, that people weren't allowed to swim and then no one learned it. Um, She set up a charity that has taught, so loads of people drown on the beach where her partner drowned. She set up this amazing charity called Little Swimmers that has taught every child in that village to swim, right? Now, her partner died saving, trying to save one child from drowning, but in fact will have saved and those kids will teach their kids and they'll teach their kids and it's spreading over Jamaica. So her partner's death has tremendous has, meaning yeah. over the generations. And her partner's death yeah. is going to result in thousands of lives being Exactly. Saved, not just the and life of their son. that doesn't take away the agony of the loss, of course, but it does help, actually. And there's loads of evidence. When people have can build something positive out of their loss, that leads to something positive. So I would say with your friend, if she's a good friend and you love her and you want to help her, then I would say talk to her about the loss she's been through and figure out some way you can help her to build something positive that will be a legacy for these losses. And maybe your whole friend group, you know, she says this woman is a part of this larger friend group. Maybe you can have a back channel conversation with other people in her friend group about how you can help her because her depression, maybe the, the lack of meaning for the death of the, you know, what she suffered is going to contribute to her ultimate isolation. If, her inability to shut the fuck up and let somebody else have a moment 
results in her yeah. being further isolated than yeah. she probably is already <laughs> because of the economic structure and the social structure that isolates people to begin with. Yeah. We're all starting at a disadvantage before we come into our relationships. That's really important. But I would say by virtue of the fact that she chose to be friends with this person in the first place, it sounds like prior to this trauma, her friend had something going for her, right? She didn't. She's not a mad person screaming at a bus stop. She just chose to befriend for no reason, right? Mm-hmm. So... It sounds to me like this woman has been through a genuine, really deep trauma. We don't want to be like the American Psychiatric Association where and just go, well, you've had your two weeks of grieving, now shut the fuck up and get back to being a little worker drone, right? If you want to be a friend who shows a deep commitment to this person, help her to understand a good friendship is not about condoning insufferable behavior, right? That's actually being a bad friend. It's like telling your friend they look good when they look like shit, right? That's not, <laughs> that's not, I mean, it depends on the thing they do right. about it. That's different. But, you know, the, the, that's not good friendship. But also, good friendship isn't just condemning someone's behavior and not trying to understand. People behave in dysfunctional and shitty ways for reasons, right? Those reasons are rarely that they were just innately bad, right? <laughs> We should try to help them understand those reasons and change those underlying reasons. I wish we could talk all day. I, I ah, could hooray. talk to you all day. Johan Hari, author of Lost Connections and Covering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions, also author of the terrific book Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. So much fun to chat with you. Thank you for coming. Oh, uh, totally my pleasure, Dan. If you want to follow Johan on social media, and you should, go to johanhari.com. You can find out. Where he is on Twitter, where he is on Instagram. Are you on Instagram? Uh, I'm indeed. It's J-O-H-A-N-N-H-A-R-I. I follow Johan on Twitter. I'm always learning things from Johan, and I enjoyed both of your books very much. Thank uh, you for coming in. Thanks so much, Dan. I really admire the work you're doing, and I'm totally chuffed to be with you. But the takeaway here is I can tell people to dump their depressed partners. <laughs> Not totally. In some contexts, after a process of love and compassion and understanding and environmental intervention, then you can say it. Okay. That is my benediction upon you, right? <laughs> All right, before we get to your response calls, some of your tweets, Aisha Ansano tweets, Hey, Feck, Dan Savage, I was listening to this week's show, and FYI, the head covering is called a hijab, not a hajib. I apologize to everyone out there. Lots of people got in touch with me to let me know that I flipped the A and the I in hijab. But sorry about that. A little dyslexic at times. No disrespect intended. Allie tweets, I'd like to thank fake Dan Savage for his wisdom that I got to pass along to my non-binary friend whose family is not supporting their name change. The Savage Lovecast is a must listen. That advice, of course, is your presence is your only leverage over your family as an adult. Good luck to your non-binary friend, Allie. And finally, Boston Gay Stoner DM'd me this at Twitter. Fuck you, raccoon, chasing me in the streets here in Alston. What the fuck? Why do you got to do that when I'm stoned, dude? Um, Okay, not sure what I'm supposed to do with that. Not sure what I can do about that. But keep us posted, Boston Gay Stoner dude, on your interactions with all the raccoons there in Alston. If you want us to read one of your tweets on a future episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now, your response calls. I'm calling about the young high school counselor in episode 643 who has a crush on one of his students. All of Dan's warnings are correct. Do not act on this crush. Don't text this kid or anything. It is a very slippery slope. Naturally, I speak from experience. Decades ago, I was fired from a teaching job that I loved because of inappropriate contact with a student. Lucky for me, the school did not want anyone else to find out, so it was all kept under wraps. I didn't lose my teaching license in my entire career, but this was decades ago. You would never be so lucky today. And listen, this is really important. 
all these years I have lived with deep regret for indulging a crush on a student. It was the single stupidest and most selfish thing I have ever done. I'm calling about the woman who's pregnant and can't eat and can't sleep and the cheating loser husband of hers. This will help her make her decision. Imagine that you're pregnant with a daughter. Is that the kind of man you want your daughter to end up with, assuming she's straight? Or let's say you're pregnant with a little boy. Is that the kind of partner you want your daughter or son to end up with? And if the answer is no, then don't show your child that kind of relationship and that that kind of person is worth the time to spend with. You will be better off being a single parent than trying to parent your way out of that loser. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Hump, my dirty film festival, is on the road with the best of Hump in its second week in Oakland and our 14th annual Spring Festival Tour headed to L.A., Miami, Columbus, Ohio. Go to humpfilmfest.com to get info and tickets and find out when Hump is coming to a city near you. And in film festival news, the submissions deadline is this Friday, March 1st, for our new film festival, Spliff, a film festival by the stoned, for the stoned. Go to splifffilmfest.com to get more info and to get tickets to an upcoming Spliff show near you this spring. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Johan Hari on Twitter at Johan, that's J-O-H-A-N-N, Hari, H-A-R-I, 101. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.